good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It's good to be with you this weekend. My name's Scott Smith, one of the pastors here, and I'm my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning, and that's what we intend to do. But I begin with a little bit of satire from an author named Michael Horton, who wrote a book called Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World. Now, keep in mind, this is satire, or is it? Longtime acquaintances confirmed to reporters this week that local man Michael Husmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and has no desire to leave. Claiming that the aimless slouch has never resided more than two hours from his parents and still hangs out with friends from high school, sources closer to Husmer reported that the man who has meaningful, lasting, personal relationships and a healthy work-life balance is an unmotivated washout who's perfectly comfortable being a nobody for the rest of his life. His childhood friend David Gorman says, I've known Mike my whole life and he's a good guy, but it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction. As he goes on, as soon as Mike graduated from college, he moved back home and he started working at a local insurance firm now he's nearly 30, living in the exact same town he was born in, working at the same small-time job, and he is extremely contented in all aspects of his home and professional lives. It's really sad. <laughs> Additionally, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is, quote, pretty humiliating on many levels. Husmer's ordinary life is debt-free, and he's perfectly content to stay put while many of his high school friends go off to the bright lights in the big city. He doesn't care about impressing total strangers every day as he climbs the corporate ladder when he can invest in the lives of those closest to him. He doesn't have a thousand friends on Facebook, just a close family and a circle of friends in town. Quote, I'm just glad I got out of there and, didn't up, and did not end up like Mike, said Husmer's cousin, Amory Martin, 33, an attorney at a large law firm, who hasn't seen Husmer, her closest childhood playmate, for nearly six years years. Quote, the last thing I'd ever want is to have a loving family nearby, feel a sense of pleasure when reflecting on my life, and be the big failure that everyone runs into when they visit home once a year for the holidays. But he goes on to say more seriously, ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Classical Academy, Heritage, L.R. Green, Bear Valley, you fill it in. OG, who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and I would insert with very ordinary pastors, or at least this one is, has ordinary friends, works an ordinary job. Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, and make a difference. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our social media profile. Perhaps the line of the book. It's one of the newer versions of salvation by works. Very interesting. Well, this weekend I want to build a case, Emmanuel Faith, with you for the inherent worth and value of living an ordinary life. I want to see what the scriptures have to say to us about that. And I don't intend to take pot shots or be critical of a radical life. This isn't about that. What I want to propose to you is this. An ordinary life, when understood biblically and lived out, is just as impactful as a radical one. 
And I want to submit this to you because so many people seem to be focused on radical that radical has become ordinary. So these days, if you want to become radical, live ordinary because everyone's focused here, but no one's doing this, seemingly, seemingly. But now, before I do that, I want to say a word about two things. One, a word about the title, and two, a word about the idea of radical. So I thought long and hard this week about putting the word magic in my title. And I thought, I'm going to get letters, I'm going to get emails, people, Paulson, you leave, look what's happening, you're gone, what's going on? So I put it in air quote, I put it in quotes to try to soften it up a little bit. But I researched the word's definitions, and here's why I decided to keep it in. First, a definition from Merriam-Webster. Uh, having a seemingly supernatural quality or power, giving a feeling of enchantment, magic. The Urban Dictionary, something hardcore amazing, if it makes you feel better. Call my message the hardcore amazingness of ordinary days. Because what I'm going for is a way to capture the mystery, the wonder, the enchantment that can come from living in ordinary life. And not because of the type that is lived to, that, not because of the type of life that is lived per se, as if to say that a life lived in pursuit of the ordinary is superior to a life that is lived in pursuit of the radical, but because God's hand of blessing and mercy and goodness is on one as much as it is on the other. My point this morning is not going to be that an ordinary life is superior to a radical life. My point is going to be that an ordinary life is not inferior to a radical life, but you see out there in our culture this notion that it is. Which leads me to this word about a radical life. One life is not, you've picked this up, one life is not inherently more valuable or useful to God than the other. They both are the issue of manual faith. It comes down to calling and obedience. If God's calling you to a radical life, go live it with all you've got for the glory of God. He deserves it. This is what he wants for you. But if he's called you to an ordinary life, go live it to the glory of God with all that you've got because God has called you to it and he is worth it. There is as much hardcore amazingness in an ordinary life as there is in a radical life. And the reality is that 99.9% .9 of us have been called to ordinary. So this is good news. Now let me build a biblical case for you for why ordinary is good. First reason, simply, Jesus calls people to it. Got a bunch of verse references there in your worship folder. The one I want to focus on is this Gerasene demoniac. If you're familiar with it from Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8, Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee and he comes into the country or the region of the Gerasenes. He gets out of the boat. As soon as he does, a man approaches him. This man's been living in the tombs. He's, he's got an unclean spirit in him. He screams day and night. He's cutting himself. He has it bad. He sees Jesus from a distance. He runs up to Jesus. Picture this in your mind. He runs up to Jesus. He bows at Jesus' feet, and then he starts screaming in Jesus' face. And what's he screaming? Son of the Most High God, what business do we have with each other? Why are you tormenting me? He says this because Jesus has been saying to this man, come out of him, you unclean spirit. Come out of him, you unclean spirit. The account goes on. And Jesus eventually does cast out of this man, not, not one demon, but thousands, thousands of them. 
And after he does, this man begs Jesus. He says, Jesus, let me come follow you. And do you remember what Jesus tells this dude? Very interesting. He says, rather than following me and what I'm doing, go home to your people. Go home and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And the account says that he just, he went away and he did just that, he did just that, and everyone was amazed. The guy gets healed, and he says to Jesus, let me follow you around. You live this radical life. You're healing people. You're casting out demons. You're feeding thousands. You're bringing back people from the dead. Let me join your entourage. Now, the fact that Jesus has an entourage means that people are called to live this radical life with him, so I am not criticizing radical. But what Jesus says to this guy is, go home. Go back to the ordinary life that you had before you were possessed by a demon. Go get reconnected to your family, bro. Get a job. Pay taxes. Go to your nephew's and niece's birthday parties. Watch the game with your buddies. If there's some girl you like, see if you can't convince her to marry you and start a family. Go do ordinary But as you do, tell everything about the great things that I have done for you. Unless you think there's just one example of this, there's another. And it's in Mark chapter 8. Jesus heals a blind man. Before the blind man can even say anything, Jesus sends him home. Go home. Don't even go back into the village that you came, that you went through on your way to get here. Just go home. We see, and there are other examples as well. It is absolutely biblical to say that Jesus calls people to live ordinary lives. And for those of us who have received an Emmanuel faith, we have not received a second class assignment. It's not as if the game is over and we get to come in now and get the junk minutes. We are not extras in God's movie. Say it however you want. Those who have received the calling to ordinary have received the calling that is just as significant as anybody else's. So I'll ask you if you believe it. If you do embrace it or re-embrace it, let this reality fill you with hope. Your life matters. Your everyday, ordinary life matters. God has significant things for you to do because Paul reminds us that you and I, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Here's the principle I see in that verse. God doesn't call us to live Jesus' life. He calls us to live our lives in Jesus' way. Do you believe that you are God's workmanship? Do you believe that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works? That God has things on his task list for you this year. He hasn't shared them with you yet, but he has them. And let me remind us of this too. This verse to the Ephesians, this was written to ordinary Christians who were working and raising kids and families and paying bills. Maybe they were taking their kids to soccer games. Maybe they were putting their kids through college. 
he writes to people who were probably born and raised and died in Ephesus. People whose names we do not even know, but people for whom he had a plan and a purpose. Emmanuel Faith, this is us. This is us. And so for those of us living a very ordinary life out of a sense that this is what God has for us, we know, we can know that it has inherent worth and value because Jesus has called us to it. There's a second reason that ordinary is anything but, and it's because Paul commands it. I invite you, if you want, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. We're going to spend a few moments there together. If you go there, for, let me tell you a little bit about the letter. The first letter to the Thessalonians, written around AD 50 or 51, most commentators are in agreement that the context behind it, and particularly these four verses, is that there are some in the Thessalonian church who are so fixated on the imminent return of Christ. He's coming back today. It could be before the 9.30 service is over. It might be before dinner tonight. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. They'd forgotten to live life. They quit their jobs. They were stirring up trouble in the churches. It's into this kind of a space that Paul writes. And while our situation may be different, may be much different than it was for the Thessalonians, what strikes me from these verses is that what Paul is essentially commanding is ordinariness, ordinariness. Let's see what he has to tell them about how to live. The verses are up on the screen. We'll start in 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. First thing that Paul says to these believers, he also says to us, focus on loving others. They believe Jesus is coming back. He's coming back today. He's coming back tomorrow. He's coming back soon. Paul says, focus on loving others. We say, we want our ordinary day in and day out lives to count for eternity. We want to work for the glory of God. What do I do? What do I do? Paul says, focus on loving others couple observations from these two verses. Paul is calling them to a, a brotherly love that is rooted in God's unconditional love. This is a love that God is teaching the Thessalonians. He is teaching them how to love. Out of that understanding of unconditional love, he calls them to brotherly love. The, they, are, they are still learning. They're doing a good job. There's still room to grow. There's still room to grow, Emmanuel Faith. So that got me thinking, how are we doing? How do we do at loving others well? You know, knowing all of the Greek words for love and living all of the Greek words for love can be Grand Canyon Chasm. I know a lot of Christians who know all the Greek words for love and don't live the Greek words for love. How are we doing at loving others as I thought about it, here were some things that came to mind. Are we continuing to let God teach us how to love each other? Is our learning current? Is our learning current? And how do we let God teach us? Well, there's a lot of different ways, but one of the most powerful is that we spend time with him thinking about how he loves us. I thought this week, he loves me faithfully. He loves me perfectly. I can't do that one. He loves me passionately. He loves me continually. Maybe that's faithfully. We think about how he loves us and then we love the people 
with the same kind of love the people that he's put around us. Here's another thought. Loving a teenager looks different than loving a toddler. Loving a young adult looks different than loving a youngster. Loving an aging parent looks different than loving an adolescent. Loving an aging spouse looks different than loving your younger version of your spouse. And so could it be that this learning is current because as we live and move and move in and out of these seasons of life, what it means to love changes a little bit. The, the application of it. And so God is continually teaching us how to love. And he wants us to continue to grow at it. And why would that be? Because love is the rebirth mark of the Christian. This is what marks us. And also Emmanuel faith. Loving people well brings deep meaning and purpose to our ordinary lives. We get up in the morning and we pray, God, help me to learn how to, help me to learn from you today how to love, how to excel still more at loving those people that you've placed in my life. Help me to know how to love them. Help me to know how to serve them. Now it's getting hard. Help me to know how to lay down my rights and my life for them God, help me to know how to do this. When we do, all of a sudden we position ourselves to have a life that counts. Whether you're driving a shuttle at a Palomar hospital, whether you're running a company, shepherding and moving kids around, whatever it is you do, whether you're married or single, kids are at home, kids are gone, working, retired, it doesn't matter. Our ordinary lives have the possibility of becoming hardcore amazing when we focus on loving other people the way God loves us. But these lives remain ordinary because it doesn't get broadcasted, right? It doesn't go on social media. Here's me folding the laundry, showing my family how much I love them by doing the dishes, paying the bills the first of every month so my kids can have electricity, we don't put it out there. Nobody cares. He cares. And he sees. And we love other people well for him. And it's ordinary. But it's life. And it's what he's called us to. It's what he's called us to. Oh, if, you're looking for, if you're not connected here and you're looking, you'd like a place to get connected and learn to love and be loved, consider joining one of our life groups. We're doing signups over these next three weekends. So the first mark of an ordinary life is to focus on loving others. The second is to run the plays that God has called for your life. We get this from verse 11. Run the plays that God has called for your life. Verse 11, Paul writes, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business. In a classic play on words, Paul essentially says to these Christians, you're all stirred up about the second coming. Be stirred up about being quiet and living calmly and taking care of your business. If you're restless for the Lord's coming, good, but be restless and ambitious about doing this. God, how can I do this while I wait for you to come back? Today there are some in our evangelical community and probably here at Emmanuel Faith who are all stirred up about making a difference changing the world, being a social media influencer and activist. And for some of those, some, this is what God has called them to do. So go do it. 
Go do it with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Go do it. You're running the plays that God has called for your life. But for some of those some, they're doing it because they've been influenced by this cultural deception that the only kind of life that honors God and counts is a radical difference maker of epic proportions who people know all about kind of lifestyle. To those who are pursuing that, for those reasons, Paul and God would come along and say, be stirred up about running the plays that God has called for your life. John 21, 22 perfectly illustrates this idea. It's shortly after the resurrection. Jesus is on the beach. This is the account where he cooks up the fish and he provides breakfast for Peter and James and John and some others. This is also the account where he pulls Peter aside and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Then Jesus has an a intimate moment with Peter where he tells Peter how Peter is going to die. Peter, get, and, then, and then Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Follow me, Peter. Peter, here's how he's going to die. He hears Jesus say, follow me. And then he looks over at John. And he says to Jesus, well, what about him? To which Jesus replies, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, I've got plays for John's life. He's going to run the plays I've called for him. And I've got plays for your life, and I want you to run the plays that I've called for you. Iconic image from the 2016 Summer Games. Do you remember this race? Michael Phelps, Chad Leclerc. Almost from the minute that the gun went off and they dove in the water, Leclerc, if I remember this right, he's looking at Phelps. And I think about this because I think how many Christians live their lives like Michael Phelps, eye on the goal, not worrying about anybody else or anything else. How many are more like Chad Leclerc? looking around, checking out, what's he doing? What's she doing? You know who won this race? Phelps won the race because he's kept his eyes on the goal. Leclerc kept looking. He kept looking. He lost. Here's what this image reminds me of. Rather than spending my time worrying about what God has not called me to, I should spend my time concerned with what God has called me to. There's nothing wrong, Emmanuel Faith, with having different callings and different roles. One might be called a radical, one might be called to ordinary. Either way, the meaning and value doesn't come from the calling, it comes from the caller. It comes from him. So, well, God, what's the play that you have called for my life? I want to live that way. What if, we, what if we joined together this week and prayed and asked us to know better what that was and then went out and lived his plays for our lives, not worrying about what anybody else is doing. And if you wonder, God, what might some of those plays be? Well, look around at the people he's put in your life to love and focus on loving them well. And then look around at the things he's given you to do, not necessarily a job, but what are the things he has given you to do, the work that he has for you, and focus on working hard. We get this from verse 11, where Paul writes, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. And Colossians 3 reminds us that we are, whatever we do, it doesn't say whatever you do that's radical, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom 
you serve. There is nothing ordinary about living a life for the glory of God. Nothing ordinary. And an ordinary life is not about laziness, and it's not about complacency. I live over on the west side of town, and when I come to church, I drive 9th Avenue. So I'll go under the freeway, come up to the top of 9th, right? When I get up to the top, I put my car in neutral. And I see if I can coast all the way down, if I can get through the line at Escondido Boulevard, that's pretty cool. Some people might think an ordinary life is reaching a point and then putting it in neutral and coasting the rest of the way. That is not an ordinary life. An ordinary life is committed to excellence. It is committed to hard work. It is committed to, it is not committed to mediocrity. It is a call to excellence in the ordinary for his name's sake. So this week, why not pray about what it might mean to take our work ethic to the next level? Again, this is not about it. What are the things that God has called you to do? And what would it mean to do them with more wholeheartedness, with more excellence, with more whatever? This adds good tension. This adds good stress to our lives. This adds spiritual viscosity. It, it forces us to push ourselves with God's direction and with his, with his, help, with his help because he wants us to keep growing and developing. Well, one final thought as we wrap. Um, perhaps a reason that people shy away from ordinary is because they feel what Rod Dreher has felt. He says this, everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in wartime or if a hurricane blows through or if you spend a month in Paris or if your guy wins the election or if you won the lottery or bought the thing you really wanted. It's a lot more difficult to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. And right under that, we started with Horton, we'll finish. He writes this. I know just how he feels. Even more than I'm afraid of failure, I'm terrified by boredom. Facing another day with ordinary callings to ordinary people all around us is much more difficult than chasing my own dreams. And he goes on to say the, the story that I thought my life would be. And it may be that. Changing the world can be a way of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day, right where God has placed us to glorify and enjoy him and to enrich the lives of others. Manual Faith, as we put a wrap on this Christmas season, we're reminded that Jesus made a way in a manger, not to provide us with an escape from our everyday ordinary lives, but to redeem them, to infuse them with meaning. And he continually calls us to enter into our days, into our moments, into our ordinariness with wholehearted faith, with a wholehearted joy, expecting that we will find him there. And so Emmanuel Faith, may we encounter Jesus in each and every ordinary day of 2020. And as we do, may we find them to be full of hardcore amazingness. Amen and amen. Let's pray together and then we will be done. So Father, we thank you for the gift of, you've given us plays, you've given us things to do, people to love. 
work to accomplish. And because you've called us to it, it has deep meaning and deep purpose. And I pray this morning that you would use your word and your spirit to remind us of this, to encourage us in this, even to inspire us in this. Thank you for telling us that our lives matter. Thank you for reminding us that you see and you know. And thank you for giving us things to do, things to sink our teeth into. Thank you for a good year. We look forward to what you have in 2020. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.